Good morning, everyone. I'm sorry we're a little bit uh, behind this morning. Thank you for coming. This is course PHM-02, Pharma's No Genetics versus Pharmacogenetics Unveiled, Unveiled, I should say. Um, a couple administrative things. Please silence your cell phones if you haven't already. And also, if you'd like to provide feedback either during or after this session, you can do so through the Pain Week app. With that said, I'd like to turn it over to Mr. Jeffrey Futen, Funden, I'm sorry. Um, and he is an adjunct professor, associate, um, at the Western New England College of Pharmacy in Springfield, Massachusetts. Okay, well thank you all for coming this morning. Uh, I'm going to uh, quickly introduce our, our panelists here. We have uh, Drs. Uh, Tim uh, Atkinson, uh, Abby Brooks, uh, myself, Jeff Feuden, Courtney Komenak, and uh, uh, Dr. Tien Pham. Uh, you will also will see on here that we had uh, Jacqueline Clary, who was one of my, uh, actually my graduate resident last year. She's now at the Wellesley College of Pharmacy and was involved in helping to prepare some of these slides, but she got pregnant. And so she said, I really can't come now because I'm going to have this baby anytime. So she's not here, but she, I, I do want to respect her uh, time. Um, so uh, Dr. Uh, Atkinson uh, is, is with the um, Murfreesboro, Tennessee, um, and um, Nashville, Tennessee uh, VA Hospital. Uh, Dr. Brooks uh, is with uh, West, West Palm Beach VA Hospital. Both of them do consultant work with Axial uh, Healthcare. Um, and uh, uh, let's see, um, and um, Dr. Uh, Komenak, uh, she's a pharmacy specialist at the Harry S. Truman Memorial Veterans Hospital in Columbia, Missouri, uh, the only state that does not have a PDMP. Um, and um, Dr. Pham is a clinical pharmacy specialist at the Long Beach, uh, Long Beach VA. So if you haven't figured it out, the VA puts out a lot of uh, clinical uh, pharmacy specialists in, in pain management. So please help me welcome uh, our distinguished uh, panel panelists. Um, I have uh, an entire slide on um, on disclosures. Um, uh, so nobody has any disclosures except for this Axial Healthcare uh, for for um, uh, both um, uh, Courtney and uh, and Tim. Uh, I have my own slide. Um, if you want to get on that list, let me know. Um, so we have uh, three objectives, and we have um, about 10 minutes a person. First, to describe common pharmacogenetic variants involved in the effects of medications used in pain management, identify clinical situations in which obtaining a pharmacogenetic profile would be useful in pain management, and develop individualized pain management regimens based on pharmacogenetic uh, profile. So the pre-questions I'm not going to read in the interest of time, but we'll get to them at the end. Uh, here it is uh, for your view again. So think about uh, the answers to those questions as we go through this. Uh, we're going to use this patient case throughout the presentation. This is an uh, HL is a 42-year-old Caucasian male with past medical history of severe depression and anxiety, uh, seen in pain clinics for uncontrolled chronic low back pain, no known drug allergies. He has a whole host of medications. Uh, I'm going to call out for you the fact that he's on three antidepressants, bupropion, venlafaxine, and uh, paroxetine, and a host of other drugs with high-dose opioids. Uh, this is a make-believe person, but I guess he is real because it looks like a real snapshot. But this is not really HL. It, it isn't HL, is it? No, I don't think so. Okay. Um, and so um, in background, I think, you know, the pharmacogenetics is really 
uh, very important. We have a long way to go. This is an area where uh, pharmacists, I think in particular, um, could help prescribing clinicians, if they themselves are not prescribing clinicians, help to sort all these things out. Uh, we do have an issue with practicality and expense. The cost is certainly going down. Uh, it's not practical if you order tests and don't know how to interpret them. Right? So that's, that's where hopefully we can help. And that does uh, create, uh, uh, require uh, some experience to sort these things out. Uh, so we're, we split this up into four topics today, all right, about 10 minutes each. Uh, the first topic is going to be phase one uh, uh, versus phase two metabolism. Phase one notoriously involves cytochrome system. Um, then we're going to talk about uh, CLMT, LPMR, uh, LPRM1, and MTHFR. Um, now, MTHFR might not be what you think it is, but um, so just, you know, hang on, hang on there. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to start uh, first with Dr. Teen Pham. Thank you, Jeff. Morning, beautiful people. How are you today at Pain Week? So we're going to revisit an oldie but a goodie, Cytochrome P450. All right, we know this quite a bit, but we're going to bring it back to the old school and review a little bit about it. So it is a, uh, is it close enough? Sounds good? No? I sound loud to myself, but I guess not to everybody else. All right, so it is an enzyme bound within the cell membrane, and it contains a heme pigment all right, and absorbs light at 450 nanometers, hence cytochrome P450. Sounds like a wrap, right? It is very <laughs> extensive, and it contains greater than uh, 50 SIP enzymes. It is primarily predominantly expressed within the liver, so try not to party too hard while you're in Vegas. Uh, but lucky for you, it's also uh, available in the small intestines, lungs, placenta, and kidneys. All right. The predominant drug metabolizing enzymes within the SIPs are the families in class 1, 2, and 3, all right, with the red highlighted metabolizing a majority of these drugs. But then let's review some of the nomenclature. All right, now we know what it does, let's understand and how it pronounces its name. So as you can see here, SIP is the SIP gene. And it's broken down further as part of the family, the subfamily, and the isoenzyme. All right, the more interesting part are the allele diplotypes. So there are two. We do get one paternally and one maternally, so it does take two to tango, right? So, and <laughs> as exhibited here, uh, the star or asterisk one, uh, that is the, probably the most common allele. Uh, indicating a wild type and normal function. Anything above that, greater than one, indicates a variant or abnormal function. And then you may see in cases where it has the X and then N. N doesn't mean N, it just means another number, which is allele duplication. So you may have, say, a star 2 with another star 2, X star 2, indicating allele duplication. And this may result in uh, increased function, whether it's abnormal or enhanced function. All right? Some of the basic terminology we well know. So once again, it is review. Substrates all right, are substances metabolized by the SIP enzymes. In, in an example of that may be codeine, then the faxine. All right? Hint, hint, because you may see it again. Inhibitors. These substances inhibit this metabolic function of some SIP enzymes. Some common examples, macrolide antibiotics, amiodarone. Inducers, substances that enhance 
metabolic action of CYP enzymes. All right, rifampin is probably a common one that may, we may see. And then lastly, our autoinducers, substances that enhance metabolic action of not only the CYP enzyme of other drugs, but also on itself. All right, everybody's favorite, carbamazepine. Some of the common uh, phenotypes and variants, you know, we may have seen this before. Uh, those who had the luxury of attending Dr. Atkinson and Dr. Funes' uh, presentation yesterday. So allele variations may be exhibited wild, wild, wild variant, or vice versa, and then variant, variant. And ultimately may result in either ultra-rapid metabolizers, extensive or intermediate metabolizers, and then lastly, poor metabolizers. Here is a visual representation. I'm a visual person, so I like to see uh, this nice little chart here, and it kind of breaks down uh, the distribution of the CYP enzymes. And ones I want to highlight are 3A4. That's why we see that quite a bit amongst drug interactions. It's the most prominent. As you can see, roughly 30% of drug metabolism is resulting from 3A4 in this group here. And then second most is cytochrome P452D6. Speaking of CYP2D6, so ethnicity also plays a role. All right, so I want to highlight those are Oceanians, uh, those are maybe Australians or from Guam or New Zealanders. Uh, they are a higher percentage of ultra-rapid metabolizers, so something to keep in mind uh, regarding their ethnicity. And then some of the poor metabolizers are unfortunately North America, Europeans, so mostly Caucasians. But this may change in the future given that in, North, or in America itself we are a melting pot of genes, right? Polymorphisms, CYP, uh, 3A4, all right, can be influenced by gender. Females may express 3A4 greater than males, and as I mentioned, may be subjected to drug uh, interactions. 2C9, patients may have increased risk for bleeding, especially if they're uh, on NSAIDs. And my favorite, as Jeff knows, is 2D6. All right, these are most prominent as far as uh, genetic polymorphisms go and may impact antidepressants and drug meta opioid metabolism. And here's a uh, ex visual representation of that. It may affect codeine, hydrocodone, oxycodone, venlafaxine, and tramadol. All right, so activities may fluctuate depending on uh, what type of metabolizer they are. And with that being said, what are the potential outcomes? Poor metabolizers with regards to active drugs may have increased efficacy as well as toxicity. All right, so that drug may hang around a little longer, and therefore lower doses may be considered. However, with pro-drugs, decreased efficacy may occur because if, for example, codeine is not metabolizing to morphine appropriately, you, know, you may not have that uh, effect that you would want it to be or as much. And they may say consider higher doses, but that may not be the best option for codeine, right? Uh, intermediate extension metabolites, we would probably typically expect normal results or, uh, or adverse effects within those range. And then ultra-rapid metabolizers, however, uh, active parent drugs may have decreased efficacy due to enhanced elimination or metabolism. Uh, sometimes higher doses may be considered. Versus pro-drugs, increased efficacy as well as um, toxicity, uh, such as the codeine to morphine. Uh, we know it's a black box warning. Don't want to use it in pregnant women. So something, even though as may say, consider lower doses, probably something you want to avoid in that case. All right, remember... Uh, drugs have multiple metabolites and phases. This is just a common uh, list of drug interactions. All right, it's not a comprehensive list, but ones I want to highlight for 3A4 as well as 2D6. All right, uh, 
just we know that pain and mental health comorbidities are pretty much go hand in hand. And I just want to highlight some of the uh, psychiatric medications that may be common and may affect drug interactions. All right, something that we don't always think about, but something that we should be aware of. So back to our case, HL. So he complains of a poor response to his therapy and review his medications. Uh, Benefaxine, paroxetine, and oxycodone, he's had poor response. So we have done a genetic test. And as a result, we see that he's an extensive metabolizer for bupropion, celecoxib, and alprazolam. So that's something we expect and it might be okay. However, he's a poor metabolizer for oxycodone, uh, venlafaxine, and paroxetine. So some of the clinical considerations you may want to think about, right, aside from the direct interactions, as we mentioned, right, you may want to consider a different SNRI as well as maybe a different opioid. All right, such as morphine, fentanyl, or methadone. But keep in mind, you may want to consider ordering serum oxycodone levels prior to switching due to safety. With that, I will pass it over to Courtney. Take it away. intracellularly in postsynaptic neurons. And what it's responsible for is breaking down dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine. And this results in changes in pain modulation, pain sensitivity, and opioid response. And it's also involved in cognition, stress response, and mood regulation. So several, you know, several polymorphisms have been identified, but the most common is a change from a valine to a methionine at 158. That's the most studied one, and there's multiple single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs, that are associated. The most common, most studied would be the RS4680. COMT haplotypes may actually better explain um, some of the changes that are going on. And so haplotypes are gene or gene sequences that are inherited together. Um, so there's a sequence that's been associated with low pain sensitivity, or GCGG, and then there's one that's associated with average pain sensitivity, and then another one that's been associated with high pain sensitivity. So just looking at um, single section changes, so um, at RS4680, there's two G alleles versus two A alleles, and what we've seen in regards to low back pain or lumbar radicular pain, um, one study sh showed that patients with this polymorphism had worse pain six months after disc herniation. Um, but on the you know, opposite side, um, Another study showed that they actually had better recovery in pain one year after surgery. So there is some differences depending on what studies you look at. COMT also can interact with OPRM1, which is the receptor that Dr. Atkinson will be talking about here shortly, and that's where mu opioid receptors primarily bind to. 
and so they can interact together. Um, but again, we're seeing some inconsistent results. So with OPRM1AA and COMT-MET-MET, we see a positive um, relationship between these two that lower opioid doses were seen in post-op pain and cancer pain. But then there were also negative studies that show that patients with this um, variation had actually the least amount of pain relief with IV fentanyl after labor and delivery. And then it also showed in another study that in surgery and cancer patients that there was a lower, um, they had kind of increased sensitivity for pain. And then there was another study that looked at post-op pain relief that really didn't show a difference. So we're still having some inconclusive information. This might better explain it and might be based on the number of copies of the GCGG sequence of the COMT. So if you have zero copies and you have AA and OPRM1, might increase your pain. Another area where there'd be a potential increase in pain is if you have one copy of the GCGG COMT and then an OPRM sequence of AG or GG. And then the other two there listed show that there is actually less pain with zero copies of the GCGG COMT and the AGGG of the OPRM1 as well as the next one where you have one of the GCGG and um, an OPRM sequence of AA. So it kind of shows how they interact. I think overall, um, going back to kind of the, the most commonly studied polymorphism, MET-MET has been associated with um, reductions in pain sensitivity, um, requiring less doses of opioid medications, and the Val-Val sequence has been associated with increases in um, pain and requiring higher opioid doses. So ultimately, leading back to our patient case, um, so he got his pharmacogenomic profile done, and it showed that he was a Val-Val genotype for COMT. So this could potentially explain why he needed higher doses of opioid medications. And then I think with that, I'll hand it over to Tim. So I guess approaches with him, you know, it could potentially explain higher doses. Um, and then you would maybe want to consider optimizing some of his non-opioid options. Can everybody hear me? Okay. So the mu opioid receptor, or OPRM1, this is the receptor, the binding site for all opioids in the body, both those that we produce naturally and those that we introduce through medications. It's also involved in pain perception and opioid response. Of the polymorphisms that affect um, this particular gene, the most studied is the 118 position and has an ND40 substitution. There's another one at uh, C17T, but there's very few studies that have evaluated this and its effect on dosing at this point. So the haplotypes that we commonly see and need to know about is first the, the wild type, which is the AA. Generally, this indicates that they are an opioid responder, whereas if you have even a single G uh, allele, then you will have a decreased opioid response. The rarest phenotype or haplotype here is the poor opioid responder, the GG, okay, which expression is typically pretty rare. So how often does that actually happen in practice? 
Well, in the studies that have been done across different populations, you can see that in the Caucasian population, it's pretty rare to have a, the GG expression on uh, about 5%. And actually, in that particular study, there were uh, 10 Asians, and 70% uh, of them had the, uh, the G expression. Um, as you can see, the last two studies there primarily studied in Asians is that the G expression is far more common. So sorry, buddy, but uh, you might have drawn the short end of the stick there. Um, <clears throat> but uh, it looks like for your Middle Eastern population and for Caucasians, that, that does tend to be pretty rare. Um, what's not clear at this point is the AG variant, which is much more common, how much that affects opioid dosing. We do know it's a decreased opioid response, but um, even the GG variant, what does that mean in terms of how much more opioids might they require? So in looking at single gene studies, even a single G variant is negatively associated with both protein and mRNA yield. Um, but in uh, at least my review of the single gene studies, this gene alone is generally not by itself enough to be predictive of opioid response. There are a couple of studies here that I've cited. Um, Zhang et al. in 2011, uh, the GG variant in that was much more common in this population because they were Asians, but they required 30% more fentanyl in that when, when they had that variant. The Genosar et al., the 2009 study, was in Italians. And actually, I think that was Israeli. Yes, Israeli. So um, it was much less common in that population, but, they but when it did happen, they required even more fentanyl, 50% more fentanyl, and they even had about 50% higher pain scores. What doesn't correlate in a couple of different studies is that uh, in that pregnant population, that uh, the AA group actually required more, um, more fentanyl to achieve analgesia, which is not consistent. And the only study that I found that actually evaluated oxycodone itself is uh, this Swissler study that actually had no difference in responders with the AA gene versus the GG gene. So it gets a little bit more clear when we start to look at multi-gene studies. And when we look at um, combining the effects of the OPRM1 and COMT, you start to see that the combined effects in a couple of studies are greater than independent of, of each gene, even if both of them are poor responders. Again, that was also repeated in another study where separately in this one they were not as predictive, but combined they could have a predictive effect on analgesic response with opioids. Similarly, with the OPRM1 and this multidrug resistant gene, you start to see that um, independently again, not that significant for morphine, okay, but together they are. Proportional Oz regression model again showed in the Asian population that the multi-gene involvement played a more significant role. Probably the most impressive study to date using um, a multi-gene model is actually this one that was just published this year um, with Senegor et al. in 2017, what they did is they, they took 63 consecutive patients that had a major abdominal surgery, and they used, um, they, prior to surgery, every one of them had a pharmacogenomic profile done, and they came up with an algorithm that based on each of these variants, how to provide the best pain relief. And so in each of these patients with their post-surgical pain, they were able to make this, this analgesic decision-making and follow this algorithm based on their genetics. 
And uh, what they demonstrated in the study is they were able to achieve adequate analgesia with 50% reduction in opioid consumption in that population. So it's really the first study of its kind to this point showing really promising results in terms of using um, an individual's pharmacogenomic profile to guide medication selection and dosing. In terms of our patient case, so in his pharmacogenomic results, we're starting to see an AG variant, which doesn't mean he's a normal responder, and he's not the poorest responder, but it would indicate that he has a decreased response to opioids or the potential to have a decreased response to opioids. Now, would that alone justify being on such a high dose of oxycodone? Probably not. In the gene studies that evaluated this, oxycodone itself was not um, significant in terms of the OPRM1 gene. However, when you combine the effects of what Dr. Pham talked about with being a, um, a poor metabolizer of 2D6, combined with a decreased response with the OPRM1 gene, you start to see that these gene effects with a decreased response can really start to add up and can co compound the issue. And with that, Dr. Brooks. Can you hear me? Okay. So what does MTHFR stand for? A mouthful, methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. So this is a gene which codes for the enzyme, all one word, so try spelling that or saying it 10 times fast, methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase, which is involved in the conversion of homocysteine to methionine. So methionine is a building block for proteins in the body. Um, and is also MTHFR polymorphisms can also impact uh, the, in, the metabolism of folic acid in the body. So when methionine is used to make proteins and monoamine neurotransmitters as well, so norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin. So these can impact patients who have depression or perhaps are prescribed depression or antidepressant medications. So the most poly common polymorphism you'll see um, related to MTHFR is the C677T polymorphism. So patients who are homozygotes for the T allele have a 30% th uh, of the expected MTHFR enzyme activity compared to the more common homozygote CC uh, allele patients. So with a reduced enzyme activity, those patients are going to have higher levels of homocysteine in the system. So where does MTHFR phenotypes come into play? So I'm just going to highlight the pain ones here. Migraines, there's mixed data out there, but because homocysteine can impact um, cerebral vasculature and, and blood flow potentially, that is the postulated impact on patients with migraine headaches. As well from twin studies, we know that genetics can play a role in migraine with aura specifically, compared, more so compared to migraine without aura. Fibromyalgia can also come into play, and we know that that's very much linked to depression or other mental health comorbidities that are also listed on this slide. Um, but as I already alluded to earlier, patients with depression, because MTHFR can affect the metabolism of things like norepinephrine, serotonin, may increase the risk for patients having depression or may have worsening symptoms of depression. 
They're also poor act activators of the dietary folate. So to improve a patient's response to an antidepressant, you could consider um, supplementing with L-methylfolate, which is a uh, medical food. So the dose of that medication can be anywhere from 7.5 to 15 milligrams per day. However, if your patient is unable to obtain that over the counter or through a prescription because it is a medical food, your other option is leucovorin. Um, and as I already alluded to several times, the MTHFR polymorphism results in the decrease in the synthesis of serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. So the thought is here that by supplementing with leucovorin or L-methylfolate, you could potentially enhance their response to an antidepressant that they're already prescribed, or you could, Im you could Im improve their levels of serotonin and norepinephrine circulating. So bringing this back to our patient case, so he, of course, has the MTHFR polymorphism. So looking at his medication list, he's on, as we pointed out before at the start of the presentation, multiple antidepressants. Part of that may be because, well, as Dr. Pham alluded to, he's a poor metabolizer at CYP2D6, so that would impact the venlafaxine. So you can consider switching that to something like duloxetine as an alternate SNRI. But if you add on either the L-methylfolate or the leucovorin supplement, you may be able, depending on the patient's response, you may be able to eventually take some of those antidepressants away because you've probably been compensating um, for his poor response by adding multiple agents all on at one time. So how would you optimize his pain control? If you're utilizing the antidepressants, consider L-methylfolate or leucovorin supplementation. Or if the patient just has comorbid depression but may not be on antidepressants for whatever reason, you could still consider supplementing um, with, with that, um, either medical food or the leucovorin. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Fudin to kind of go over the summary of this complex patient. Yes, thank you. Well, <clears throat> we had a lot of slides, and I must say I love working with this group because we got through all of them, and we have plenty of time. We did harass Dr. Pham a little bit at the beginning because he had a lot of slides, and it may be a, a 2D6 thing, it may be an Asian thing. I don't know what it is, but we got through it all, so, so it's all good. Um, all right, so um, here's, the, here's the case. And I think that um, before I summarize uh, some of these issues for you, Here's a key take-home message here. Even if we knew and agreed upon a morphine daily equivalent for all opioids, it would not amount to a hill of beans because there's so much interplay here between these various, um, these various genes and, uh, and phenotypes. So here's the medications that we have here. This patient's on bupropion 150 BID, venlafaxine, um, 300 daily, paroxetine, alprazolam, salicoxib. Maybe the patient needs alprazolam because he's anxious because nothing's working for him and he keeps getting antidepressants added on. He's on high doses of, of opioids. So just to summarize um, the, um, the recommendations from our esteemed panel here, Dr. Pham walked us through the cytochrome uh, P450 system. Um, and... Um, but what he didn't tell you, because he probably was trying to save time, is that uh, you talked about nanometers right, of, of light in the 450. It's not actually 450. It's actually 448. 
but it's it's a true story. But the the scientists that developed this probably thought we couldn't remember 448. They had no problem with 2D6 and all this other stuff, but they couldn't remember 448. So it's actually 448, but we'll go with the 450. Um, and uh, uh, Dr. Film uh, nicely pointed out uh, that because of these um, these issues with cytochrome and the drugs the patient's on, um, he's on bupropion, which affects uh, uh, 2B6, right? Um, he's on, which was not an issue for this patient, but he's on venlafaxine, which requires 2D6 metabolism to ODS methyl venlafaxine. Uh, 2D6 also has some uh, interplay uh, with, with paroxetine, um, and so does 3 4 actually. So we need to look at the whole picture here. I think that um, probably venlafaxine would be most, uh, most affected in terms of that. And, of course, oxycodone is metabolized to um, noroxycodone by 3A4 um, and um, oxymorphone by, by 2D6. Then Dr. Komenak came up, and uh, um, she, she said a few words that nobody heard. Uh, but, then, but then after I got the microphone fixed, uh, she talked about the, uh, the, the various haplotypes of CM, COMT. Um, she also talked about uh, that this patient was a uh, VAL-VAL um, um, variant, um, and this, this could actually increase the needs for, for opioids, which might help us justify the high-dose opioids. Now, I'm telling you from, from spending a lot of time in court, um, when, when a state agency decides to pull somebody's records, on a spreadsheet because they're an outlier in terms of opioid dosing. Um, it, it is a beautiful thing when they call on a PharmD expert to, it never really gets to court. Because when you present stuff like this uh, to a bunch of people that have no clinical background and say, Here, here's the real story, the alternative news, uh, then what ends up happening is that all of these cases, at least in, in, in thank God, uh, that I've been involved in have all settled out of court. Why? I'm not sure why, but I suspect that no state wants this to be a case law, because if it does, they will not be able to harass doctors anymore. All right, so, um, so Dr. Komenak pointed out some, some very important uh, issues with regard to, to COMT, uh, and again, she said maybe this will help justify uh, the increased opioid dose and certainly could have an impact on the poor response to... to um, antidepressants, and maybe that's why the patient's on three. Keeping in mind uh, that venlafaxine, if it was properly converted um, by 2D6, we'd get more norepinephrine activity. That bupropion has a little bit of norepinephrine activity, but also blocks reuptake of, of dopamine, uh, right? And then uh, paroxetine, of course, is, is an SSRI. So we've got a lot of interplay there. And not all patients respond well to, to serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Then Dr. Atkinson uh, came up. Um, and he talked about the OPRM1 uh, um, and didn't seem uh, too, too thrilled about, about just the justification of this increased opioid dose uh, because of the OPRM1 based on the data. Uh, he also pointed out that this patient uh, was an AG uh, variant, but said that that would not really justify um, this high dose uh, alone, but um, acknowledged that the patient is a poor 2D6 metabolizer, and we talked about the oxymorphone uh, metabolite of oxy, oxycodone. Um, so um, after Dr. Atkinson, uh, we heard from Dr. Brooks. And uh, Dr. Brooks uh, aptly pointed out that maybe the issue is, is the MTHFR. Um, and uh, and uh, she, she offered up uh, that if, since we know that this patient was deficient, 
that we could replace that by bypassing the conversion uh, of folate to the active form tetrahydrofolinic acid uh, by either giving L-methylfolate, which is a natural supplement, uh, or by adding uh, leucovorin. Um, either one of those things would work. If you do give leucovorin, please remember that you should probably supplement with zinc because leucovorin um, um, depletes, uh, depletes zinc. Um, and, and she said that that might be uh, a wise decision uh, to, to do because we might be able to get maximum benefit from, from the antidepressants. So, so in summary, like, what, what, what would we do here? Well, um, I mean, practically, like, what would we do and how fast would we do it? I think that this would, um, we'd have to uh, have a discussion with the patient and, and perhaps um, that discussion would be, you know what, there's a very high likelihood that the reason we have to keep increasing your opioids and or that you're not responding is because you're really not a good candidate for opioids. Um, it, they, they, they probably are not going to have a lot of benefit in you, but there's going to be toxicity. You're still going to become physically dependent. You're still going to be constipated. Uh, you're still going to have these, you know, these other uh, issues that are associated with opioids. And you know, you got to deal with this, this every 28-day prescription fill and, and all the, all the um, political issues we're dealing with. So maybe our long-term goal um, over the next few months would be to decrease the opioid. Before we do that, let's do the simplest things first. You're on three antidepressants. My goodness, I mean, from a compliance perspective, that's, that's potentially an issue. And maybe you're not responding to those because you're deficient in, in MTHFR. So let's do the simplest thing first. You're on a lot of drugs anyway. Let's just uh, try to use less PRN oxycodone. We'll go down from 15 milligrams to 10 milligrams. We'll keep it simple. We'll, we'll give you uh, either, you know, let's say, methylfolate if you can get it. If you can't get it, you let us know. Um, and I'm going to give you a, a zinc supplement. We're going to leave everything like it is for, for now. And then you follow up with the patient in a short time, a week or two uh, maximum. And uh, from my experience, the patients usually do extremely well. And they can start chipping away at this other stuff. All right? I probably, at that point, um, would, uh, would go after venlafaxine because we know that this patient's a poor uh, 2D6 uh, metabolizer, right? So what I would do um, is I would probably have the dose of the venlafaxine. We don't have any risk of serotonin withdrawal because the patient's covered with paroxetine, right? So I'd have the dose of, of venlafaxine. I'd use immediate release tablets. I would stay in touch by telephone until I had the patient off of venlafaxine and monitor them appropriately. Um, after venlafaxine, um, I would go uh, after... Uh, probably bupropion. I think it's a little bit easier because we're not dealing with serotonin, right? After we eliminate bupropion, we may or may not have to uh, uh, um, taper off the, the paroxetine. Um, the alprazolam, uh, maybe after, you know, the patient may need more alprazolam because all this discussion is causing a lot of anxiety. But um, after time, they may not need the alprazolam because they're feeling better. Um, and when all this is done, the patient's feeling better, then I think you have an easier time tapering the opioid. All right. So the, the moral of this story is it would really be nice if, 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 the, if Congress would make PharmD's providers so that they can get paid to be in offices and work with some of our, our medical colleagues. Um, so um, with that, uh, we're going we're gonna to go through these, uh, these post questions, and then we have a few, few minutes to, to take questions from the audience. So which of the following tests can help guide and optimize analgesic therapy? Um, the answer to that question um, would be COMT and MTHFR, right? Um, Catechol-O-methyltransferase and methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. 
The next question, which of the following are converted to an active metabolite by 2D6? Uh, that would be both uh, tramadol and venlafaxine. Starting from the top, salicoxib requires 2C9 um, to a uh, sulfonamide um, a derivative. Desvenlafaxine is the metabolite of venlafaxine, requires 2D6. Moving down to number three, morphine does not require SIP metabolism. It gets metabolized in phase two to um, the, um, the glucuronide metabolites, the, the three glucuronide and the six glucuronide, the, the latter of which um, can accumulate and has analgesic activity and toxicity, and the, the uh, three glucuronide, which can cause neurotoxicity. Oxymorphone, as well as morphine, only goes through phase two metabolism. Uh, and then the fourth choice is uh, hydromorphone is phase two. Pentadol is almost exclusively phase two. It's got a, a, a teeny bit of, uh, of uh, 2D6, maybe 2%, um, and a very, very small percent of 2C19. Um, ch- check those facts. I'm not sure, but I think that that's correct. 13%. Okay, good. All right. So, so in conclusion, uh, genetic variability can um, uh, result in unique uh, prescription efficacy and side effect profile uh, and can affect the dose for sure. Pharmacogenetic testing can guide individualized uh, therapy. Irrespective of, uh, of the, the evidence, we have a lot of knowledge here, and we can use the, uh, the information to guide therapy, not to, not to dictate therapy. Uh, if used appropriately, the cost is easily offset by the cost of multiple drug trials, especially uh, with antidepressants, since we know how long it takes. And in conclusion, uh, pharmacists do know genetics, um, and, uh, and that is the end of the pharmacogenetic session. We have about uh, five minutes or so for, for questions. So uh, let's start in the front here. Let me just repeat the question because it's being recorded. So the, the question in summary was, if this patient had multiple 2D6-type drugs, um, what, would they collectively have an impact on the other drugs? Is that what you're saying? If they multiple competitive inhibition. Yes, okay. Microphone. This guy here. All right. So, so the question is, uh, could TD6 be saturable given the other drug interactions? Um, from, from my understanding, I'm not entirely sure, given that information you brought up, which is kind of interesting. Uh, it wouldn't probably be the best to answer that. So, okay. So the, the answer to that question is no. <laughs> All right. So you, you, you have 2D6 inhibition or 2D6 induction or 2D6 anything or 3A4 anything. It, it, you, it's, not a, it's, it, it's not a summary. The one drug that has the, the, the one item that has the most impact on the CYP enzyme is the only one that affects it. It's not additive. It's not, it's not multiple. It's, it's the one that has the most activity is the one that affects it. Okay. Uh, uh, other questions? Yes, sir. I couldn't hear that, but if somebody heard that, you might want to repeat the question. He's asking if there's any um, efficacy with monitoring homocysteine levels when you're supplementing. 
for MTHFR polymorphisms? Uh, do you know the answer to that question? I'm not aware of anything like that. There, as far as I know, there is nothing like that. Yeah. Okay. Other, uh, yes, sir. Okay, so the question is, uh, this fellow likes doing pharmacogenetic testing, uh, but he's unsure whether it's being supported financially by third-party payers, uh, private payers, uh, and or state and federal government. Um, the coverage is pretty good. Uh, the, the costs have come way down. Uh, most of the lab companies are, are working with the various uh, payers, and um, I, I have not heard in a very long time that anybody's had a hard time uh, doing these tests. The issue is that if you get audited, you better have an actionable outcome, even if it's nothing. So you get that report, and it says that this patient is, uh, you know, uh, poor MTHFR, the patient's an ultra-rapid 2D6, whatever it says, right, you need to look at the profile and say, okay, well, you know what, there's really nothing here that's going to guide my therapy. Or you need to say, based on this, 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 these results, um, I, I, I plan to do exactly what I just laid out for you with this particular patient, and then go ahead and do it. Because the last thing you want is to order these tests, not have any follow-up, and if your chart gets audited, the insurance company says, why are you ordering all these tests? You're trying to make more money? So there needs to be some kind of actual outcome, positive, negative, or indifferent. Other questions? Yes, sir. Okay, give, give this man a microphone, please. Should I, re should should I, repeat, should I repeat it? Repeat because, if I, because if I repeat it, it's going to take 10 minutes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to share experience. Because the, the medication would cause uh, severe damages uh, like Stephen John syndrome or, or 10. So, uh, so the allopurinol and carbamaldipine, they have their SNP, they have their SNP polymorphism. One is HLAB. 505801, and the other is um, HLAB1502, respectively. Uh, so uh, in Taiwan, uh, they will require you, before using this medication, you need to check their SNP, whether they have uh, any polymorph SNP polymorphism. And uh, there's another thing is that in the Waffering Clinic, uh, they will request you to test your 2D a 2C9, if there is any polymorphism for the efficacy of warfarin. Of course, you can monitor their R. So uh, basically, so I would just want to note, for, except for sharing my experience in Taiwan, I also like to know that in the United States, is there any, uh, is there the, the testing of 2D6 for treating, uh, for treating pain, is there any valid testing or is still under investigations? So that's, that's a lot of great information. I'm glad that you brought it up. And I'm sorry to say that Japan is way far advanced in, in pharmacogenetic uh, testing and outcomes than the United States is, and so are other countries. Um, 
I, uh, the worst thing is to have a, an Asian person with Stephen Johnson syndrome or a Caucasian person with Stephen, or any person with Stephen Johnson syndrome, right? So, um, th- that, I mean, that's wonderful information that you brought up. And um, what, I, what I'm going to share with the audience here is that um, we really need to be cognizant of the population uh, that we're treating. We need to be very cognizant of um, if we are presented with drug studies uh, to validate, uh, let's say, a, a, um, a, a farmer rep gives us an, uh, a study, we need to be asking what population was the study done in. I can remember 15 years ago being presented, maybe 20 years ago, being presented with these new SSRs that were coming out, like it seemed like every, every week. And I always said, what population it was in? And then when I was told it was done in Japan, I'm like, well, that's not going to do me any good, right? Um, uh, 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 about two years ago, I gave a, a lecture um, in Southern California to a pharmacy group, um, and it was on drug interactions uh, with medications used to treat neuropathy. And I show up for the lecture, and I've got all these beautiful slides, and then about 90% of the room is filled with Asians. And I said, so I'm going through the slides. I'm like, well, this recommendation is different. This recommendation is different. So in Southern California, we have a different population, or we may have a population of, of Persians in a certain part of California. Uh, so uh, you know, we may, we may be giving a lecture uh, where we have a lot of African Americans. So we really, when we do presentations, and we didn't really do this today because it's more about science, um, but, but you need to know your audience. Uh, and, and, if you're, you know, and, and if you're speaking to an audience that's going to be treating uh, a variable population, we need to really point out, which we did on, on one of the slides, uh, oceanic and different sorts of populations. Uh, Tim mentioned Israeli and so on and so forth. So um, I am thrilled that you brought that up. If there's any other questions, we can take them uh, uh, offline here because we're at the end of our session. Thank you.